Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 79, uh, and we're going to be talking about an individual again. This is another one of those podcasts where we choose one person and just sort of deep dive their life and times. Um, Andrew, we've chosen a good topic for this one. Uh, John Zachary DeLorean. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, we've said before, haven't we? We want the subjects of these people podcasts to have led interesting lives, and it helps if they're not saints, if they... You know, if they've been involved in controversies and, and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, in those regards, John Zachary DeLorean is a perfect candidate, isn't he? Yeah, no shortage of, of, of uh, controversy with him. Um, ex- exactly right. You know, um, I guess there'd be all sorts of people who just lived sort of glowing, saintly lives. Um, but, you know, we're not going to go after, you know, villains or anything specifically. But, you know, I, I mean, people who have just, you know, who have. I mean, DeLorean, as we'll get to, uh, was both those things, wasn't he? He was a hero and he was a villain. Um, and, you know, his impact on the motoring world. I mean, everybody thinks of DeLorean, they just think of, you know, Back to the Future and the, the two seater and everything. But in fact, as I'm sure we'll get into, his history in America before all that was extraordinary. Um, he's a fascinating, whatever you think of him. Um, and I think it's probably important at this stage to get in really, really early that he was never convicted of, of any crime. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is actually quite extraordinary in the circumstances. <laughs> um, but you know, so we have to catch it and all of that, uh, even though he is obviously long gone. Um, yeah, he's just he's just a fascinating character. Um, yeah, so looking forward to get into it. Um, so yeah, I mean, before we do get stuck in, we're recording this on the Monday um, after Rally Finland, and I just want to say congratulations to Elfin Evans and Scott Martin for winning Rally Finland. It used to be not too long ago that if you weren't Finnish or at least Nordic, you didn't you win know Rally that. Finland. Yeah, and it's it's really changed in the last decade or so. Um, and so to win that event is a staggering achievement. Um, and also a huge well done to Craig Breen and Paul Nagel in third. They were clipping along all weekend. Um, Breen 
they're not doing a full season. They're, they're part-timers. And Breen described them. They're both Irish. He said, not bad for a couple of part-time paddies. Um, and so, you know, to, to, be, to sit out a couple of rounds and step into a car, particularly for a rally like Finland, yeah. um, and be as quick as they were, bloody hell. Um, I, saw, I, I saw some clips that have been sort of posted. I haven't seen I watched it, but my goodness. You were at something to say, we really are in a golden age of rallying. And it, it, it honestly, I mean, you know, I, I, I come from the school that nothing's too fast, but it looks terrifyingly fast, doesn't it? It's worth saying because, I mean, if somebody gets it a little bit wrong at those speeds, it's, it, it's an airplane crash, isn't it? And yeah. No small accidents. No. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen this time around. Um, it was spectacular to watch. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we know that the cars are going to be different next year. And <sighs> Malcolm Wilson told us, didn't he, the boss of M Sport, that he thinks they will be quicker, but they'll be heavier and they'll have less aero. I suspect on a rally like Finland, um, they won't be as quick, but maybe in a tight, twisty one where the extra hybrid power comes into effect perhaps they will be quicker yeah. than, i don't know but yeah but but i mean we we've we've also discussed haven't we that it's going to favor the thinkers isn't it it's not going to favor the freehand artists it's not going to favor the you know the just chuck it in the sorted out merchants um it'll be interesting to see but you know what we do know in all of motor racing is that you know any new set of rules rarely survives the first engagement with the, with the engineers and in, in in the form that uh was originally intended and whatever uh the organizers want the new rules to be you know people will always be think, already be thinking of ways around them and you know I'm, I'm sure that if they start off as fast as the current cars very shortly they'll become a lot faster which is a bit scary but um it yeah. will certainly not be dull will it <laughs> well no and we know the new cars are safer as well when you look at the roll ca- I, I've, I've ridden in the puma um, and even just getting in the thing is really tough because there's a huge new roll car, roll cage bar, sort of uh, right next to where you sit, um, and it you know loops all the way across the car, and it, you do feel pretty safe in there, except that it would be quite tricky to get out in the event of a crash. But yeah, I mean, how fast these cars are going now—it's it's obviously no bad thing if they're if they're safer. Um, so. Anyway, I just wanted to say congratulations to all of those guys because it was just superb to watch all weekend. Um, but we're here to talk about John, and we have to say John Z. DeLorean, don't we? We have to get that right. Uh, born January 6th, 1925, importantly, in Detroit, Motor City. Um, I mean, that must have been the thing that really formed him, wasn't it? Being born in Motor City, it's to some degree inevitable that you end up in the car industry, as he did. Particularly then. Particularly then, right. yeah. So his formative years would have been, you know, just after um, the war and, you know, in the 50s predominantly. That's when he kind of made his mark. Um, when Motor City was, you know, just the probably the most exciting place to be on the, on the planet in terms of the global um, car industry. Mm. Can you imagine? I suppose it was Silicon Valley in the 1950s, wasn't it? Yeah, probably. Um, all that innovation, all that investment. Lot, yeah, lots going on. Um, and so he, he he went to university, then he did a post-grad course at the Chrysler Institute of Engineering, um, graduated in 1952. So, yeah, an amazing time, actually, only seven years after the end of the Second World War. Um, and he went straight into Chrysler's engineering team, and he was 
clearly a very bright prospect from day one. He was an engineer through and through, a proper engineer. I think that, do you know what, that actually gets lost, doesn't it? It wasn't until I watched something fairly recently that I realised he was an engineer. He wasn't a showman or a salesman or... No, or or a crooked businessman. I mean, he he probably was all of the above, but originally... (laughs) you know, he started, he started off designing transmissions, didn't he? Um, and he revolutionised... Um, whose was it? Was it Chrysler? Was it? Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, there was some transmission that he just kind of looked at and said, well, we shouldn't do this. We're going to make this thing really, really, you know, massively improve it in a very short period of time. So, yeah, pure engineer through and through. And, in fact, in later life, he used to lament the fact that the sort of the engineer-to-bean-counter ratio had changed so much in favour of the bean-counters. Um, and he thought the motor industry would be a far better place if there were just more engineers in it, which is hard to argue with. It really is. I mean, his career went off like a rocket. So after only a year in industry, he got poached by Packard. Um, and just an interesting stat that kind of demonstrates the high regard he was held in. He was paid $14,000 a year, okay, which in 1952 is the equivalent today of 135 grand. Um, it's a big six-figure salary after a year in industry. Um, four years later, he was head of R&D at Packard, only 32 years old. So his early career just went poof, like that, stellar. Um, and he was, he was in demand, evidently. Packard was struggling, so he, he received a call from General Motors um, offering him his choice of job in any five divisions at GM. Um, so just, just, just brief, briefly going back to the Packard thing, I, th- I think what is quite interesting is that Packard was kind of very much an outlier, particularly by then. Uh, and they, their business case was, you know, whereas obviously the big three would knock out cars on a sort of, you know, stack them high, sell them cheap basis. Packard was the opposite of that. They did really, really high quality um, engineering led cars. Uh, and I think that probably informed a lot of DeLorean's thinking going forward. And he's always trying to do that. He's always trying to make better cars. And when he decided to go off and do his own thing, it's not surprising to me that he decided to go and build a, you know, a low-volume, high-quality sports car. Now, obviously, we'll get on to the quality issues with, with, with the DeLorean. <laughs> it didn't quite work out that way. But you know, that's, certainly what he was, that's certainly what he was planning. So I think his formative years at Packard, he went to Studebaker as well, didn't he? Uh, although they merged, didn't they? Um, I think you know. I, th- I think you can understand a lot about the way he was in later life by the influences he had in his early working life. Mm. And then one of the first things that he did when he went to GM, and he took up a post at Pontiac, um, where he was assistant chief engineer. Now Pontiac, it was perhaps an odd choice because at the time, I think it was a deeply unsexy brand, wasn't it? Yeah, it really wasn't the kind of car mark that if you, yeah, if you love cars... But he cars, soon changed that, didn't he? He soon changed that. And one of, if not the first things that he did, and he was responsible for this, the Pontiac GTO, a proper, yeah. you know, copper-bottomed icon of a car. Um, and he, he dreamt it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is when... This is in the 60s in Detroit when the muscle car thing was just getting going, I suppose. But he was right there, ground floor, and he came up with the Pontiac GTO. Um, I had no clue. So a lot of my research for this was actually just watching something on, I think it's on Netflix, Framing John DeLorean with Alec Baldwin. Um, it's a bit sort of hammy in parts, but it's part documentary, part drama. Um, but it gives you a real insight into who the bloke was and what he achieved in his early days. 
namely the GTO. Yeah, I mean, amazing that still such a young person could have that much influence at that higher level in an organisation like like GM. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, he was one one of the founding fathers of the American muscle cars. I mean, we think of obviously the Mustangs and you know Chevy Camaros and that sort of thing. But the Pontiac GTO was, I mean, it was the it was the boss, wasn't it? Um, and you know, and, and he was ballsy enough to use those three letters, wasn't he? Which, yeah. he, which came straight from Ferrari. Um, and he was uh, he was ballsy enough to go, you know, this is how you should be thinking about this car. It's that kind of distance above anything everything else and you know and you know briefly it was mm. lofty ambitions love to, love to drive i've never driven one i've, I've, I've I actually actually i haven't really i haven't driven that many proper american muscle cars um which is probably why we've never done a podcast on one because i don't really feel that qualified to talk about them um you know i've driven mustangs and camaros and chargers so the, the really really obvious ones but something like a, I don't know, a Plymouth Superbird or something like that. I just, I just don't know enough about them. Haven't driven them, but um, maybe we should. Anyway, maybe we sorry. should. And the GTO is on that list, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so that yeah, the point being that he went into this very uncool car company, did something cool like the GTO, met massive resistance from within the company. That this isn't what isn't what Pontiac stands for, but it it was a huge success, um, and it was really transformative for Pontiac. Um, and you know his star at GM was just in the ascendancy after that. Um, I mean, there are some there are some interesting stats around how. Well, okay, so we'll come to that a little bit later. But at the age of forty, um, he'd been given Pontiac. He's, you know, he was he was the head of Pontiac um, and the youngest ever division head at General Motors, just forty years old, um, and he was starting to become that rarest of things which is the celebrity car engineer or car executive. Um, he was prominent in high society, who was dating models and actresses, married a couple, um, hanging out with celebrities. Um, yeah, I mean, not your typical car company exec. There are lots of shots of him with, you know, an open shirt and sideburns and a tan. And he was, he was just living that celebrity lifestyle. He was the kind of the prototype for guys like Bob Lutz and Lee Iacocca and that sort of thing, yeah. wasn't he? He was, yeah... Mm. Yeah, when at a time when it's this is Motor City when it's really roaring, it's you know swinging sixties, and if you're the boss of one of those car companies, you're you're held in the highest esteem, aren't you? Um, and so quite soon after, by before the end of the sixties, he's the head of Chevrolet, um, and he's he's earning mega money now. Uh, so yeah, I mean maybe we have to take these numbers with a pinch of salt. I think they've come from his book, so perhaps not, but his annual salary um in 1969 was equivalent to 1.4 million dollars with bonuses up to another 2.8. So Yeah, no, I mean I, so I heard that I mean I always thought it was, you know, he was earning over in modern terms over 2 million a year. Mm. Yeah. Staggering Which, money, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah, but you know, it, 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 there are no shortage of people in those sorts of positions today who come on similar salaries. Um, but I think I think I think, and, and again, you know, because we're obviously warming up to, you know, what happened to him, you know, what ended his career. I think that the culture, a the personality that he was, but also the culture of the organisation that he was in, um, you know, he must have got to a point where he thought he could do no wrong, um, and you know, he, he I, I think he just thought that he was the man with the with the Midas touch. 
Um, and I think that, and, and probably because the culture was is that there was no one there turn around and, you know, turning around and saying no uh, to him. And I think he could do whatever he liked uh, because most of the stuff that he'd tried to do had worked. Um, you know, he'd been very good, hadn't he, with streamlining Chevrolet, getting the production costs down and making the company profitable and, and everything turned it around. else. So, yeah. yeah, he turned it around. So, you know, at that stage, you kind of think, well, there's nothing I can't do. Mm. Yeah, you so probably buy doesn't... into your own sort of yeah, media yeah, persona, you, you, you don't you? You believe your own bullshit, don't you? Yeah. Um, you know, it happens. Mm. Yeah, well, at the, so by 1971, Chevrolet, it had been in trouble, but by 1971, under his tenure, um, it was experiencing record sales. So an exceptionally gifted auto executive, he really was, um, a brilliant engineer and an excellent uh, executive as well. And it seemed as though he was on his way to the presidency of General Motors, um, I, th- I suspect a lot of people thought it was inevitable. But in April 1973, he took a left turn and quit. Um, some say he was fired because the GM board saw him as a, a maverick, maybe a liability. Um, but, I mean, I suppose we'll never know the exact circumstances. But in early 73, he left and he, he was given a Cadillac franchise in Florida by GM as a retirement gift which is a nice way to depart, isn't it? Um, and so having left General Motors in the same year, he founded the DeLorean Motor Company, um, which is, of course is, I suppose, what he's best known for, isn't it? His name's on the car. Um, now, I, I, I sort of struggle to understand what this car was all about. Um, did, what, do you have a sense of where it was supposed to slot into the market. Was it a 911 rival? Was it a bit cheaper? Yeah, I think, than I, th- I, th- I think that's exactly it. Well, it was certainly meant to be cheaper than 911. Um, but I think that was it. It was meant to be, you know, a 911 for, for the everyman. Um, you know, it was meant to be, um, you know, affordable. I think the 12, because it became the DMC 12, I think the 12 was the, in dollars, the intended price for it. It was going to cost $12,000. Um, and I think that's what I think that's what he thought he could do. I think he thought he could do um, an American 911 for a fraction of the price of the real thing. Um, but as we know, it, it didn't work out like that. Um, and you know, I was just looking through. I was looking through the number of different power plants that car was meant to have had. It's extraordinary. Mm. It's it was supposed to have, it's meant to be a Wankel engine car. It's meant to have a yeah. rotary engine in it originally. <laughs> uh, and then it was going to be a Ford, wasn't it? Right, okay. It was going to have the Cologne V6 in it. And then, or was it a Citroen? Now, maybe it went rotary Citroen. It was going to have the powertrain from a Citroen CX, two-litre four-cylinder. Uh, and I think they then, you then realised that that wasn't going to do it. No, actually, no, I think the Ford did come first. But anyway, so, you know, it went, so it went rotary Ford, then Citroen. And it's only after that that um, when they realised that the Citroen was, you know, not going to, the car wasn't going to be able to get out of its own way, given how little power it would have had, that they went to the PRV engine, the Peugeot Renault Volvo engine, the 2.6, the 2.7 litre V6 Duvrin engine, as it's known, um, which is when it was discovered that it was too big to go to be mounted as a mid-engine car. So they had to completely redesign the car um, to be a rear-engine car. I mean, you know, that's just the... I mean, it does surprise me that a bloke like DeLorean, who seemed to have such a firm grip and such clear ideas, you know, got all this really pretty basic stuff wrong. And maybe he was a victim of circumstance. I don't know enough about 
um, you know, how things actually worked at the time. But um, he just seems to have not had a grasp on reality, um, which which does surprise me. But, um, you know, we know that the car, when it finally turned up, was nothing like the car he originally envisaged. Um yeah, I mean, you're, you're quite right. If in the 70s you would have backed anyone to found a new sports car company and make a success of it, it probably would have been yeah. John DeLorean, wouldn't it? Because he, yeah. of his, everything he'd achieved in Detroit over the years. Um, it was in the mid-70s that the prototype, the, the concept, I suppose, was first shown, designed by Gijaro, um, with the, the, well, the Garwing doors and the stainless steel body panels. Um, so immediately it looked completely unlike anything else on the road um a two-seater yeah it was originally going to be a mid-engine car but as you've explained it went through so many different powertrains that eventually it was in the back um now was it quite as i've looked at a few sort of technical drawings was it quite as rear-engined as a 911 or was the the engine sort of over the rear axle line rather than right behind it yeah, I, it wasn't it wasn't as rear engined as 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 the nine eleven, but you know it, it it is absolutely correct to describe it as rear engined um, rather than mid engined. Um, yeah, and you know, and underneath it wasn't just that the engine moved; the entire way the car was built because he wanted to he wanted it to be have sort of you know uh, glass fiber underpinnings and underbody. Um, and it just wouldn't work, and that's how that's how Colin Chapman got involved. That's how Lotus got involved. Um, and you know, when it was quite clear that they were never going to be able to put the car into production in the form that it was in, they went to Lotus, and Colin Chapman went, "Well, we can fix this." Um, and they did it by underneath the underbody having another chassis, which was basically the backbone chassis out of well, it was related to the backbone chassis that was in the Lotus Esprit. Um, which fixed the car in that it could work and be productionized, um, but it also made it massively heavier than you know it was originally envisaged. So, yeah, I mean, so many mistakes made, so many false dawns, so much time spent, so much weight added, so much money spent. Um, it's perhaps not a great surprise that when the car was finally uh, unveiled, it was you know a bit of a mishmash. Yeah, quite different to the car he originally envisaged, I imagine. So it's just over 1,200 kilos, 130 horsepower, 153 pounds for the torque. So <laughs> we're not talking strong numbers, are we? Um, yeah, it wasn't I, brisk. I, I, I can't say, just over 1,200 kilos, that doesn't sound like much these days. I mean, back then, you know, a 911, which would have been, well, the early 80s, a 911 SC, you know, which had two more seats, um, would have been 1,100 Hmm. And so it's actually, yeah, with 200 horsepower, well, or even back then, 1980. So in 1980, a well, the SC came with 180, 188, or 204 horsepower. So it's probably the middle one. It's probably about 188, but you know, just a completely different level of performance. Hmm. Yeah. So it was going to be a, a really quite technically interesting car built in a very innovative way but they couldn't do it. And so Lotus came on board and made it a more conventional sort of car, but something that they could put into production. Um, and <clears throat> it did take, from the company being founded to the car entering production, it did take eight years. Um, and with all those different powertrains, different chassis configurations and so on, you can just imagine DeLorean becoming increasingly frustrated and wound up with all these delays, all these technical difficulties. Um, so it must have been a relief when at long last, it did go into production. 
And remarkably enough, it went into production in Dunmary, um, just outside Belfast in Northern Ireland. Production started in late 1980. But they started building the factory in Belfast in the late 70s, which is... I mean, the troubles in full swing, I suppose, when they started building the factory. Um, Actually, an extraordinary time and place to try and build a new car plant. But the point was that the British government was offering huge grants to any companies coming into that part of the country um, and creating jobs. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was massive unemployment there. There was obviously terrible sectarian violence going on there. Um, And the Labour government of the late 1970s, I think... Um, thought that this was a way to to help with those problems, to bring some genuine prosperity. Um, you probably got the numbers in front of you, but it was, I mean, in modern times. I mean, I mean, if you if you translate the figures forward, I mean, it would have probably been under half a billion quid or something. It was it was it was a hundred million or so, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. The, yeah, it was. Um, because you know they didn't just because he tried to go to other places, hadn't he? He'd gone to. Um, He'd gone to Puerto Rico, I think. Um, He'd gone to Ireland, not Northern Ireland, uh, and they'd just gone, forget it. Um, But, yeah, the Brits said, yeah, bring it on. And they built a factory, they built a test track, they did the whole thing, didn't they? Yeah, huge investment. And probably on the back of his name and his achievements over in in Detroit. I mean, Yeah, but you'd think somebody would have had, you know, if you back you know if you'd been around back then and you'd been shown this car and you knew it's gestation and you looked at the spec and you looked at the opposition and and and, and you know and you knew also that you know that people tend to buy particularly with cars like you know mid or rear engine coupes tend to buy on the badge and that you know delorean may have been you know, a long time before, you know, a big name in, in, in America. But, I mean, you would have thought, is this, is this worth betting the farm on? But it appears that nobody did. And they just went, oh, here you go, here's the money, fill your boots. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, this is where the DeLorean story starts to become very murky. Um, and, yeah, so in the, in the early 80s, finally, this car is being built in Northern Ireland for the, for the USA market. But in the early 80s in the USA recession was was looming um, and so the market had become a much tougher place than it had been just a few years earlier um, and it it all meant all the complications all the delays the trickier market I mean you're right they they were intending to sell this thing for twelve thousand dollars but when it eventually went on sale it had a base price of twenty five thousand um, dollars so it's it just got out of control very quickly didn't it so selling a much more expensive car into a weaker market, a car that was nothing like the one it originally should have been, um, built in a factory that's never built anything before because it was new, with a workforce who... Worked. By people who'd never bought a, built a car before. Exactly. Yeah. So, and there were huge quality issues. Um, Massive. Massive. Just, uh, <sighs> given all of that, there was just no hope, was there, of this thing, this thing surviving and the company prospering from that that moment on it doesn't seem but also you know he he made you know a bad situation much worse because you know when he would have realized that you know the car didn't get the press reception that he'd hoped it would get um unsurprisingly i mean this was a car it's not 60 time i think road and track or car and drive one of those tested it was like 10 and a half seconds to 60 which even 40 years ago 
was, you know, so a 911 SC in the same era, six dead. Yeah. I mean, just a totally different, you know, there would be any number of, you know, sedans in America, which would be quicker than that. A top speed, I think, of 109. This was, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't pedestrian performance. It was pathetic performance. Um, and, you know, so that coupled with, you know, the recession, when DeLorean realised that, you know, things weren't going well, instead of thinking, all right, okay, fine, we've got to cut our cloth accordingly and, you know, decimating production and just, you know, living within its means, um, he increased production, which led to those photographs of hundreds of DeLoreans unsold unwanted just stacked up it was just you know and it was just it was just so sad um and it particularly sad for the people you know who you know the locals who just who must have just thought that their savior had arrived um and had you know gone over there you know done their absolute best to build these cars uh, and just seen all their hopes and dreams just you know run like sand through their hands it's 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 a terribly terribly you know people sort of think about it in terms of you know the financial fraud and everything else which they should but i was on some uh i was looking at some forum the other day um which described what delorean did and all the consequences of victimless crime because it was just money and it was government money and that sort of thing i was like well no no you think of the jobs and the livelihoods of the people who were there um, and their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations. Um, and because of the hubris of this bloke, um, and because he thought he could do no wrong, um, and, you know, frankly, all the dodgy dealing that went on, it all just, you know, turned to shit, frankly. Yeah, it does speak to someone who had some enormous triumphs early in his career, bought into his own hype, thought he could do no wrong, and took at what looks like a bold or arrogant or egotistical i don't know what it is but decision to double production at a time when they couldn't sell cars it's hard to know what the logic ever was um and so very quickly the company's on its knees john delorean is desperate um and that's how he gets caught up in a cocaine trafficking trial he's desperate for cash he needs cash to try and save his company and somebody comes to him um, with what appears to be a very, very shady deal, um, offering to make some make a huge amount of money available to him if only he gets involved in a cocaine trafficking deal. Um, and he, he goes along with it. There's footage of him agreeing. Um, he's on board and he's, you know, he knows what he's signing up for, or at least he thinks he does, because in fact it's a, it's a government sting. Um, it's the FBI coming after him, um, trying to nick him. Um, it's an amazing thing, actually. And if you want to know more about it, you should watch Framing John DeLorean. Um, you see, all the footage is in there, the actual footage and the audio recordings of all of this going down. He knew what he was getting involved with. He was well up for smuggling some cocaine across a border. Um, it just didn't turn out that way because it was a sting. Um, and it was a huge story, wasn't it? Do you remember this all kicking off? I mean, you were several years away from starting the car industry, but you, I wonder if oh, you sort of yeah, recall I it. Was. I mean, I, do I remember it? Yes, I remember it. But I wasn't because I was never a sort of news reporter. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't even, I wouldn't have even been in the, in the industry then. It was just kind of like I was peripherally aware of it. 
Um, but what I do know is that the FBI just they completely stuffed it up. You know, you know they would have been they would have known better than anybody what the rules of entrapment were and what you can and cannot do. Um, and DeLorean was able to provide the total defence of, "Will you set me up?" And if you do that, then you know a prosecution can't proceed. So he was acquitted, despite the fact that, as you rightly say, there's no question at all that um, he agreed to doing this extremely illegal thing in the eyes of the U.S. law. Um, and because of the way the FBI approached it, um, he he got away with it, you know, and 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 and, and he was he was completely acquitted of all um, of, of of all charges, which, you know. If you go and see what he had agreed to, it seems, seems remarkable. But, you know, they were idiots. And, um, you know, the law is the law, isn't it? Yeah, that's the way the law works. That's the way the courts work. So it's August 1984 that he was acquitted. But by then, DeLorean Motor Company was bankrupt. Um, and his reputation as a businessman was tarnished for good. Um, I mean, wow, what a fall from grace that is. He was the star of the Detroit car manufacturing scene he had the actually the bravery to go off and do something on his own and it just unraveled in no time at all until he found himself in a a cocaine trafficking trial Um, but it wasn't the only enormous controversy it wasn't the only trial that he found himself implicated in um, because there was a a fraud trial a tax evasion uh, trial Um, I mean lots of lots of that do, now, you might have to let me know about this, but was it the, the government money that a chunk of went missing? Um, yeah, I mean, so it was, this was money which was meant to have been paid to Lotus for the development of the car. Uh, and it was paid through a Swiss holding company. This is just my memory of it, which may be faulty, but I think it was paid through a Swiss holding company and then just never turned up. And the accusation was that the money, in fact, was diverted through some other strange financial mechanism company offshore whatever to three people to um lotus's accountant fred bushel um to john delorean himself and none other than colin chapman um and yeah i mean i think i think the thing was is what another thing that delorean got wrong was you'd obviously you know he'd built his factory and done everything else you know on the back of money that was provided by um, a Labour government in the late 1970s wishing to see redevelopment of, the, of, of that area and, and I think probably didn't do sufficient due diligence to make sure that was actually a good idea. By the time all this kicks off, it's there's a Thatcher government in power, which is, you know, which is probably thinking an awful lot more, harder about, you know, whether money is being well spent uh, and where it's going. And... Um, and I think he thought, well, you know, the British government had always just taken his word for stuff in the past and that they would do it the future. And they didn't. They hunted him down. Um, now, by this stage, he was back in America and they couldn't extradite him. So he never stood charges for that. Um, Colin Chapman died. So he never stood charged for anything. Um, and Fred Bushell went to prison for three years. Um, and I knew of Fred Bushell. I don't think I ever met him. Um, but I was very much in the industry then, and I can remember going to prison, and I can remember at the time, the view was that, A, he was banged to rights, but no more so, and probably less so than the other people who were involved, and that he was, 
you know, it wasn't the fall guy for him because he was definitely guilty. I mean, he, played, he pleaded guilty. You know, there was no attempt to mount any kind of defence. Um, but he took the rap for, you know, for the crimes of, you know, of, of both himself and others. Mm. It was $8.5 million that went missing in the 80s. Huge sum of money today. Um, yeah, I mean, people do think that Colin Chapman would have been implicated in all of this and perhaps his reputation would have been quite different had he not died in December 82. Um, but, ah, I mean, we have to say, though, again, that DeLorean was acquitted of all charges. Was he acquitted or was he just not, to, or, or, or were they unable to charge him because they couldn't get him to the UK? Um, uh, I don't know. What, what I read is that he was acquitted of all charges, but perhaps that's a, a technicality. Perhaps it's the same thing. I, I, don't I know. thought he couldn't be extradited, so charges were no. never brought, but I might be so, wrong. So he was never found but guilty. But either way, he certainly wasn't convicted of anything. Yeah. So he's... <laughs> That's the story of John DeLorean, isn't it? A stellar early career as a car engineer and executive. Goes off to create his own sports car company, something that he envisaged being a very innovative, pioneering sports car. Turns out it's not that simple. Um, the, the economy tanks. Um, he builds a factory in Northern Ireland. The car turns out nothing like he wanted it to. Um, and he becomes so desperate that he's involved in drug trafficking and um, fraud. <laughs> yeah, it's just a hell of a fall from grace in not a particularly uh, great period of time. Um, and yeah, I mean, he lived away the rest of his, his life in a very small condo, having lived for several decades in the lap of luxury in enormous houses. Yeah, Concord um, everywhere. I mean, that was the that. other thing, and I think that's what really cheesed off the government was that he had been living high on the hog um, when his company was going under. You know, it was always the most expensive hotels. It was always Concord, and this, frankly, was British taxpayers' money that he was spending. Um, are you going to ask me if I've ever driven one? Uh, yes, I am going to. Um, I, I should just just to sort of wind wind up on John DeLorean himself. So he died March nineteenth, two thousand and five. And according to his family and people who knew him, till the very end, he was talking to backers, investors, other people about his next car project. Um, so right to the end, he was trying to get something else off the ground. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to talk about, you've visited the, De- the DeLorean factory just outside Belfast. You've driven a DeLorean. So can we, can we talk about the factory first? Well, we can. I mean, well, I visited the factory. I couldn't get into it. Um, because it was all barriered up um, and but I mean it was you know it was a state-of-the-art factory when it was built um, in the very early 1980s uh, it struck me as being very large for, I mean I think they only produced 9,000 cars in whatever in that couple of years I mean but I think the I think the the capacity I think it was designed for a capacity of producing about 15,000 cars a year and I know that they had to produce a five-figure sum per year to be profitable. And they didn't do that in total, let alone per year. Um, and then the, the, the test track, it was, I mean, there were, I don't even know if it's still there. Um, I expect it is. I think uh, it but is. Even then, but even then, there were, you know, it was totally overgrown. Uh, it wasn't safe to drive around. You could walk it, but it had a, it had a bank section. And, and it was just, I could just remember going there. It was a... It wasn't a nice day. It was dark and it was rainy, and just kind of wandering around, 
looking at this test track and looking at the factory and you know thinking of the hopes and the dreams of you know, when this place is all sparkling new and just how how much hope people would have had for their futures there um all of which came to nothing um and i found it profoundly sad and then i drove the car um it wasn't all bad i mean it was a terrible car but um for for, for lots of the reasons that we have discussed um but actually you could see or i could see it could have had something if it had had a bit more power if it had a bit less weight if they built it properly I mean, I can remember, for instance, that it, you know, it rode and handled really well. It's called double wishbone front suspension, multi-link rear axle. You know, you know, back in the day where Porsches were still using semi-trailing arms and McPherson struts. Um, you know, it's it had potential, totally unrealised. There was some talk, wasn't there, about um, doing a twin turbo engine for it? I mean, you know, that engine did go on to produce, you know, decent horsepower in, you know, Alpines and that sort of thing um, with turbochargers attached. Um, And, you know, what if, what if, what if? But, you know, the car, even once Chapman had had to completely re-engineer it, the car had the potential to be okay. I'm not sure it would ever have really troubled the 911. But when I drove it... um, it was just so slow and the, I can remember the gear change was terrible and the engine was arthritic and and you just sat there thinking really this is really what they thought was the standard um and it's astonishing really because it was if the sadness is it wasn't just a bad car it was a bad car that you could see how it could have been at least decent but it never got anywhere near it um so I, you know i was quite happy to hand it back and try not to think about it again um and of course once all the back to the future nonsense happened um you know the company was shut um it was all over you know that was an entirely retrospective thing so that you know arrived far too late and you know and i, and I wonder now if it hadn't been for those films if anybody would remember DeLorean, I mean, I read somewhere that like of the 9,000 odd cars they built, like 6,500 are still on the road. Um, but I think, you know, frankly, we should thank Marty McFly more than John DeLorean for that. Um, because without that legacy, I think it would be a completely forgotten thing. I don't think that we'd be having this conversation with people going, oh yeah, there, there was something called a DeLorean, wasn't there? Um, but as it is, you know, it's kind of front and centre in our minds. Um, but that had nothing to do with DeLorean or the factory or the car. And I suppose for John DeLorean's legacy, the the Back to the Future films mean that he's perhaps more closely associated with the car that's the time machine from the movies than with being implicated in fraud and uh, and drug trafficking trials. Um, yeah, it's a great story, isn't it? And... It's odd that there hasn't been a proper blockbuster biopic um, a Hollywood film of his life because it, it's just the stuff of of a Hollywood movie. Yeah, um, it is interesting. Um, I mean, it, I, th- I think it's sad when anybody dies disgraced um, with their dreams in tatters. But, you know, he absolutely brought it on himself. He was absolutely the architect of his own downfall. Um, and, you know, he unquestionably, and I have to be careful, I don't know, well, do I? Um, <laughs> you know, 
there's all sorts of things he should have been called to answer, which he never did. Um, and, you know, I do not buy into the concept of the victimless crime um, in this context. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, really interesting guy. But I think for all he achieved in the early part of his career, um, that's, you know, that's not what he mean. People, people don't remember John DeLorean as the person who built the Pontiac GTO uh, or turned around Chevrolet uh, or for the, you know, for the genuinely superb engineer that he was. They just think, well, he's the dodgy bloke who did DeLorean and that's it. And that's his legacy. And that's, you know, that is sad, but it's probably what he deserves. Yeah, a career of two halves, really. Um, good. Okay, well, that's John DeLorean, um, a brilliant candidate for a podcast like this. Uh, so if you've got other suggestions, this actually came in from a reader or a listener, I think. So forgive me, I didn't make a note of your name. But if it, if it was you that suggested we talk about John DeLorean, thank you very much. And yeah, if, if anyone else has a good idea for a candidate for this sort of podcast, let us know and we'll do it. Um, good. Okay, well, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening rate and review the podcast as ever that does mean a lot it is important and go and download the intercooler app as well and start your free trial um andrew we'll be back uh, to talk to everybody again next week look forward to it. all the best